0: Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound Podcast. I'm your host, i Dana. How uh, Head of Growth at SaaS Group, a serial acquirer, buying wonderful SaaS businesses to take them to the next level. Here, I chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Glenn Rogers, co-founder and CEO of Float, one of the top-rated resource management SaaS tools to keep projects profitable, workloads sustainable and teams in sync. That's a great promise to have to say and I want to learn how you're doing this. So welcome to the show.
1: Look forward to getting into it. Thank you, Anna.
0: Thank you. Thank you for making the time. And finally, we're almost in the same time zone. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to get uh, some Australian founders here. It doesn't happen very often. But, uh, yeah, happy to, uh, to do it. And let's maybe start with your background and just the whole inspiration behind Float.
1: Sure thing. Yes, I'm Glenn Rogers, CEO and co-founder of Float. I'm based here in Melbourne um, and, yes, lead a team of 50 now of uh, people primarily Async, uh, We're remote across uh, more than 20 countries now. But um, Float was founded uh, back in 2011, so we've been thinking about this problem for a long time now. We still continue to be fully bootstrapped, and uh, it's been a wonderful journey. But, yes, it started with this idea that there, uh, the resource planning was primarily done with, with a spreadsheet, and this was a problem we encountered at an ad agency, uh, myself and my co-founder Lars, when we were uh, working in New York, and uh, we figured there had to be a better way, and so uh, we we came up with the idea of Float. Um, we built a problem. Uh, we built a solution to a problem we knew existed then, and uh, and have uh, been on the journey ever ever since.
0: That's wonderful. I I hear so often like that was a problem that was primarily solved by Excel sheets, and we wanted to change that. So, thank you, Excel sheets, for you know being the reason for
1: <laughs> a constant inspiration.
0: <laughs> yes. So much frustration that, you know, people make their own wonderful tools. Uh, So wonderful. So what is float and what is the problem that you're solving? Can you maybe elaborate a little more?
1: Sure thing. So Float is a software as a service that helps teams sort of plan their capacity so they can make better decisions on ultimately what projects they take on. And typically these are professional services teams like ad agencies that are managing multiple projects at once. They have many client requests they're fielding. Um, and so whereas sort of project management sort of puts the project first, Float puts the people first and the planning of their capacity. Um, and today, look, there's just so many more dynamics around how Float uh, how work is planned that didn't exist back in 2011. We have uh, you know, flexible work hours, for people working remotely, hybrid, different locations, uh, different types of time off. Float visualizes all of that so that uh, ultimately you can p- make better decisions faster.
0: That's wonderful. I feel like putting people first is kind of a motto of the company, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, the question that I have, you know, you started in 20, 2011 and uh, you're making somewhere around 10 mil ARR, and um, you're fully bootstrapped, fully remote. Uh, Is it kind of like beyond your expectations of what you had about Float when you started it? Or was it the the idea, you know, building a solid business, running it for 15 years, or maybe more building this dependable software for teams around the world? So what was the aspiration in 2011?
1: In 2011, it was, it was this you know uh, itch you had to scratch, this problem that existed, and you knew that there had to be a better solution for. I think as founders, and I've tapped to many founders, you, you just want this thing to exist in the world, and so you will it into existence. Um, but I think the journey since has, has certainly gone beyond the imagination um, at the time and the ambition at the time, and. Um, frankly, I've just been in love with the journey. I, I know it sounds a bit trite, but like that 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 journey of of growth um, over over that period, um, it, you know, it's uh, enabled personal growth, but also just um, you know enabled us to sort of keep driving towards that vision of helping teams make the most of their time and and live their best work lives. You know, that's how we spend our time at work um, and reach more people, reach more customers. That's always been more fun. Have opportunities like this. Um, You know, Simon Sinek has this great book called The Infinite Game and sort of a mindset of continuous improvement and long-term goals. And I relate a lot to that. I think that's what's driven a lot of um, what keeps us doing what we're doing and and being on the field and playing the game.
0: Fascinating. Okay. So uh, I I want to ask a bit more about bootstrapping, right? Because, um, again, while you started in, in 2011, right? But the um, the industry and just the space where you're operating has become so much more competitive since then. And like maybe it made sense to start bootstrapped, start small, just like you said, will that thing into existence. But since, you know, the industry has changed and there are so many players uh, right now. Why did you continue staying bootstrapped and not, not go after VC BC, uh, BC money? And like, what helped you in this sustainable bootstrap journey over the years?
1: Yeah, and look, speaking openly, I think like like most uh, founders back in 2011, we, we went out and seeked funding and we frankly couldn't get it. You know, it wasn't an attractive problem space, wasn't an attractive pro- resource scheduling, wasn't all that attractive. So um, we certainly weren't dogmatic, but but I think over the years, um, it 's become one of our greatest advantages and, and acts and a real privilege to sit here today and say we are still one hundred percent bootstrapped um, because it gives us so much optionality um so so uh, so much uh, sort of uh we can decide the path we take and and uh, that that i you know don't take for granted that said um uh, it's also and and in doing so is build up a, a really uh Strong uh, practices in how we how we do scale, how we uh, you know, ensure that we have more revenue than we ha- than we have operating expenses, um, and that you know only now is what many of the large VC funded uh, companies are having to get good at. Um, we've been doing that for 13 years, so. Um, that's a great advantage to then decide, you know, how you play the next uh, stage of your journey and whether that requires raising funds or um, uh, seeking different investments or partnerships, you have those principles in place to make those calls when you need to. And that's what we'll continue to do.
0: Okay. All right. So what do you, how do you structure, you said you you have all the the practices that helped you uh, over the years. So how do you um, go about your spending? So like, If what is basically the cap on like how much profit you should be making per per month per year to start hiring to maybe you know uh, tap into uh, advertisement or or doing something that requires a bit more investment? Um, How do you go about your spending there?
1: Yeah, I think what it does do is promote a really strong feedback loop of experiment and iterate and improve, because there is no one answer to that. And I think um, what we're trying to do uh, simultaneously is grow the team uh, and then experiment with uh, ways to increase the funnel of leads, so the advertising, um, and then upskill in, in areas we didn't, ha- you know, we weren't that strong in. And all while doing this within the constraint of the money that comes in each each uh, week month, and so that in of itself um, just requires you to move really fast on small incremental ideas, um, and uh, and that's something we've got really good at, frankly. So so that's something that we'll continue to do, and we've got really good at. Um, and now we're just fortunate to be able to place a few bigger bets um, with the uh, with the revenue uh, that we couldn't say ten years that's, ago.
0: That's great. So maybe you could share like one thing about you know spending, how to be mindful about it for the founders that are considering, you know, uh, adding uh, investment uh, and well, frankly, maybe you, you think that it's not necessary. There are ways to cut costs and there are ways to be smarter about spending. So what was uh, or what is that one ultimate thing that helps you always be um, yeah. Be mindful about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So when it comes to spending, I think there's two, sort of two big buckets for us, which is uh, team. You know, your, that's your biggest, biggest expense, and then marketing. Um, and and for us, I think on the on the um, team side of things, um, the one thing I will say is um, you can get very experimental, and uh, you can really take big bets in product. But with org design, so much has been done before and done well and roles have been established that you can really learn a lot from other founders and, and uh, reading and, and uh, what, how other companies have been built. So the one thing I will say and what I have learned is uh, don't get too tricky with org design. You grow uh, with a very specific model and sp- certain roles and departments. Um, so that's how I think about team design. And then for marketing, um, counterintuitively, I think we started by doing so many things, and we we now do less, but we do it very well with strong domain expertise. So you know, I, I can give you an example. We we started by doing conference sponsorships and freemium and social every social channel, and and now we do uh, two social channels, and we do. Google AdWords, but we get very good at it and, and, and we go very deep on it and it's very intuitively we understand it and we can draw a line from a dollar spent to a dollar converted. Um, so the, that's, uh, I guess, how we think about marketing spend and scaling that.
0: Yeah, I think it makes total sense. I mean, when you're starting, you kind of want to to experiment with everything to just validate faster what works and where to focus. And then, you know, you just double down on that. So that makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. So a bit more about your team, right? And it just did the whole organizational structure. Uh, when I was doing my research, you noticed like how transparent you were about it. Uh, like I found this um, position that you're hiring for. I don't remember what it was, but it was uh, everything was out there. The salary, the, the um, what kind of flexibility you're offering, what kind of, uh, you know, perks uh, are there, uh, how you like to work and blah, blah, blah. And there is this video available on the website where uh, I think each member of the team is there and everyone's talking about the culture. So what about that, like radical transparency um, for you and in, in, in the flow, like how does it help you in growth and, HR marketing, I don't really like the term, but anyway, (laughs) um, um, so yeah, why did you decide to go that way? Because a lot of companies are very, um, yeah, very shy about, you know, sharing culture, let alone the salary expectations.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think there's two parts of that, the the sort of transparency and then the culture. Um, and we've made a very deliberate, uh, 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 we've made a very deliberate intent uh, the last few years to, to be more transparent um, in our hiring. And so we've always been great at documenting. Um, I think it's such a core tenant to a great remote team distributed in more than 20 countries that you get very good at documenting. Um, so we already had the information. It was more about would we share it? And we, so we decided yes. Um, and, and this is for many sort of intrinsic reasons that that the idea that um the more we can share about life at Float and expectations, salary, the the the, the uh, sort of. Uh value exchange here, when we're hiring for candidates, uh, the, the better these candidates can decide if float is, is right for them them and opt into that, which means by virtue of that, we get a higher quality of candidate that is more likely to be successful at float. It's a win-win. Um, and so we've really leaned into that. The quality of candidate now is far higher than it was a couple of years ago. Um, and they're more in tune with how we work. So they are uh, the, the, the interview process, the, the whole process from interview to, to onboarding is, is generally just a, a lot more productive and, and effective.
0: Okay. And, uh, yeah, you, you, um, you keep saying that you're distributed in, in 20 countries and that is great. I mean, we're at SaaS group, I think we're at 32 now. So it's, wow. it's, it's wild, uh, but we're a little bit bigger, right? We're over 300 people. So, right um, and for us, you know, the, the communication and uh, high performance is, is, is something that we, you know, we strive for. But obviously there are challenges, right? So many people, so many uh, time zones. So how do you work around it and how do you make sure that, you know, your distributed teams are high performing uh, while being uh, fully remote?
1: Sure. And look, we have the benefit of, of being remote from day one. We we founded Float in New York City, uh, Lars and I. Lars is now in Seattle and I'm here back here in Melbourne. Um, uh, So we, we have built these practices for, for 13 years and iterated on that. And so it's not like we've started at a single destination or office and then had to try and make this transition or have a hybrid situation where things are happening in one location and folks are missing out. And I think that's so important to the success of remote because there is no fear of missing out. There is no centralised uh, you know, knowledge base that, that people aren't privy to. Um, and that's been a huge advantage for us. Um, so it does mean... We rely heavily on async communication. It does mean we get very good at that. It does mean we leverage tools like Loom um, to share context like this, but async, um, and and Notion for documenting our our ways of working, our values, our roadmap. Um, We get very good at written documentation as well. So um, yes, again, we continue to chip away at these um, practices and, and improve on them. Um, And we tend to attract folks that thrive in that environment too because what it does do is provide a great advantage to long blocks of uh, of uninterrupted time. And that's something we actually um, have a lot of at Float, very few meetings, long blocks of time to get work done. And, uh, yeah, we find that's also very productive.
0: That's wonderful. So what was one tool that uh, gave you like a boost of, uh, you know, communication and just overall understanding of how to work together? Uh, was it Loom? Was it Notion? Was it Float?
1: <laughs> Look, for us, I'm going to have to give credit to Slack. We we started on Slack around 2011, so that was, it was right when it was sort of beta, so that private beta period. Um, and we still use it today. And I think a lot of people hate on Slack and, and what it is it or isn't. Um, but uh, I'm a huge fan and, and we run our business on it. So um, big, big, big ups to Slack. And then I think the next uh, tool has been most, uh, tendential, I guess, in our, um, remote journey has been, uh, Loom. I think it's been a game changer for, uh, just providing context to feedback and discussion, um, that text can't, uh, or that you miss in body language. Um, so while it doesn't replace, you know, conversations like this and, uh, and that still happens and we still have in-person meetups and we make time for in-person, um, discussion, um, we can we can communicate an incredible amount through um, both you know the written and video medium async.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think there is nothing that will eventually completely substitute like the real conversation. But Loom is great, and I'm there with you about Slack. I don't know why everyone's so bitter about it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's been good um, for us. All right. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, good. All right. Wonderful. So um, you, um, you mentioned, you know, uh, deep collaboration with your team. And you know, the fact that that you're also talking with other founders, uh, learning from them. And I know that you're organizing Australia's biggest founders meetup. Um, And uh, I would love to learn more about it. Because I feel like especially when you're fully remote, when, you know, one founder is in one country and uh, another is in a totally different part of the world, it can get lonely. It can get, you know, a little overwhelming and community helps. And uh, like we've um, experienced it ourselves. And, uh, you know, we also have like this retreats and the events that we do for, for founders in the industry and It has such a tremendous effect on us and on just building relationships and staying in the loop, uh, knowledge sharing. So how did you come to creating this um, or co-creating? Tell me uh, a bit more about it. I know very little. Uh, The Australian Founders Meetup and what's there for you and for the growth of the company, too?
1: Yeah, I think you said it well. Look, when I returned from New York, I'd been in New York eight years and returned to my home city here in Melbourne. I just didn't know any founders. I didn't know any, anyone in SaaS. Um, so I figured the quickest way to do that, this is when meetup.com was a thing, was to to just start a, a meetup, um, which was a SaaS-specific meetup um, here in Melbourne. Um, but what it really gave me permission to do was just to reach out to people that I otherwise didn't know or couldn't. Uh, couldn't connect with um, with an opportunity to speak at or attend. Um, and so I do that every month. And, and, and me and the two other co-creators, um, we just invite folks we really just wanted to know or get to know. <laughs> it's a bit of a selfish uh, play, but it was amazing. And from that, I've, I've met so many folks in similar positions or in, in the community, whether it be, you know, Michael, one of the founders of Millernote here in Melbourne or um, James Cameron, who's one of the VCs and a very deep SaaS knowledge here at Airtree in Sydney. So um, yeah, incredible. I, I encourage everyone to, to uh, kick off these communities when you want those opportunities and, uh, and to not be afraid just to reach out to people that you, you wanna learn from. I, I think if you're genuinely curious and authentic and, uh, and you take the time and consideration it's incredible who you, can, who you can connect with.
0: This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com slash course, rewardful.com slash course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I remember this one point. Um, we, we did an event in Barcelona for, for Spanish founders, and uh, no one really knew each other, right? And it was all new, uh, and we, we sat at the table, and it was like, oh, God, this is... This could, you know, turn to be a bit awkward, but then, you know, the uh, the conversation started floating, and we stumbled on AI. Obviously, because like twenty twenty three was the uh, AI boom, uh, and people just started, you know, ranting about the fact that you know ChatGPT API <laughs> is so bad and no one can figure it out, you know, and people started pitching in. And that was kind of the common problem that they found at this table. And uh, I, I believe that, you know, some collaborations were um, agreed upon there. And uh, it was, it was fascinating to see that, you know, people who five minutes ago didn't know anything about each other, came together because of us. uh, And, you know, found something valuable.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I love hearing these stories because it only takes, yeah, one person to lead it or or uh, take the time just to, to put the, the right people in the right room and, and wonderful outcomes can happen. I, I love that. I love that energy that comes from those opportunities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what has been, uh, and if any, you know, has there been a topic that uh, you and the other founders have been continuously discussing at those meetups uh, in 2023?
1: Uh, so so that that actual meetup we we sort of discontinued um, it, it was it was a great when i first got i 've been back here now six years and so um, we ran that for a couple and and then uh, sort of sunset it a little bit i guess meetup dot kind of did as well um, but i 've actually i 've remained friends with um, with many of those founders to date and so look, I think what 's been challenging in saAS has been what appeared so so simple and easy in 2021 has become incredibly challenging in 2022-23 as folks uh get a lot more strategic about their software purchases as uh you know uh, i guess basic uh you know economics coming to play in how how software is sold um and that hasn't been easy for bootstrap founders either and i think a lot of the discussions we've been having about how you navigate that world where uh, yeah, less folks are spending money on software. You've got high inflation, a lot of uh, tough economic conditions that make you work harder, and uh, and so yeah, never been dull conversations in the last few years.
0: Right. Yeah. I feel. I feel like yeah, absolutely making you work harder, but also making you work smarter and experiment a bit more. Right. So, what has been uh, an experiment, or maybe you know something that you did in twenty twenty three. Uh, amidst this, you know, turbulent time, that has helped uh, float, float.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny you say that. I think we've always been good at sort of the experiment culture and and, and trying things and iterating on those over the years. Um, But we just got a lot smarter as a business, right? Like so... For years, we had folks grandfathered on old plans and never took the time to, to move them onto current plans and current pricing. So we did that, and that's been a huge impact to our revenue. Um, we had features out there that just didn't have uptake or or weren't managed properly. We had integrations that were uh, costing us a lot of tech debt but weren't being used by a significant portion of users. We sunset those. And in doing all of that, it became a lot clearer what our product was, what our what our customers loved about our product, our biggest champions because they were willing to pay that current pricing. And all of that has been a huge advantage now as we move forward. We're much more focused. We know who we are. We know who we're building for. Um, so as you say, like it's, it's been challenging and challenging for any SaaS, any founder. Um, but I think the outcomes are better products, better, you know, happier customers. And I think that's a net positive.
0: Right, right. I, I feel like a lot of yeah, like you said, a lot of businesses are becoming a bit more focused because they were at first afraid to to narrow it down because you know what if we lose money, but then right. yeah, if you're becoming a little more a, a little smarter about the niche that you're serving, about the problem that you're solving, and about your pricing, then uh, it shouldn't be an issue, and Regarding the pricing, I mean, that's a that's a very um, interesting topic. Right. A lot of founders are afraid to uh, to change their pricing. And I mean, even in our portfolio, we have a couple of companies. that have never changed their pricing, right? They they, they have just grandfathered their um, loving um, customers all these years. And now they're starting to become a bit more focused and experiment with it. So how do you go for you? Like, uh, okay. One question would be how early should you tell your customers that you're done grandfathering them? Um, is it one month, two months? Is it, you know, is, is there any magic number at all? Because like for some, it's still going to be, um, too fast. Um, and yeah, how did you change it and what was um, the ultimate thing that moved the needle for you?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think pricing and packaging is so fascinating, both the sort of behavioural science, but also just uh, how you think about it strategically as a product. So how hey, you incentivize the right behaviours. So we have three plans today, a, a starter, a pro and an enterprise. And so, how do you, um, you know, align value with each package, and, and how do you uh, ensure that the 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 starter will soon become the 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 pro over time? Um, and and so we we think about that a lot. Um, when it, and and we did a lot of that exploration during the period of looking at our customer base and and uh, what they were paying and. Uh, And we had data going back to customers, you know, eight, nine years old. So we had a lot of information to dig through there. Um, And when it came to the actual grandfathering and decision to move them to current pricing, um, what we did do is spend a lot of time on the communication side. We uh, we, we were roughly three months out was the first comms to those folks affected. Um, And we took the time individually to assess a discount, a sort of ramp up discount um, for, for those affected so that you wouldn't automatically get dropped into the current pricing. Um, depending on the plan you're on, you would stepped into it. So you may have a 20% discount for the next six months uh, and then before you move to current pricing. Um, and in and, and taking that time of consideration and consideration and really taking the time in the email to communicate that specifically really helped because we, we, it was vastly successful, the actual uh, outcomes. Um, we built in a certain percentage of expected churn. It's been far, uh, it's been far less than that. And uh, I think it's because of that time and attention um, that we put into the comms.
0: That's wonderful. Okay. Uh, so uh, just want to come back a little bit to your zero to one kind of uh, uh, journey. So what were the first steps for Float? To get the initial customers. And how has this strategy or how has this process changed over the years um, in terms of growth and customer acquisition?
1: Sure. Um... Look, when we started out, we knew nothing about marketing or uh, go-to-market or whatever that term meant. We built the product yeah. as we wanted it to exist. And in many ways, it was early sort of Tip 2.0, we thought if we, if we build it, they will come. That was not the case. <laughs> so We uh, spent, and this is 2011, we spent probably the next three to four years, um, one by one, you know, any, any, uh, any customer that would find us, any lead that would reach our website, um, Truly trying to overservice them and and uh, and understand the problem that they were trying to solve with float, um, and that was a long process of. I think over the first you know three months we had like five customers. Over the first year we had seventy. Um, and this did not pay the bills either. So this was the nights and weekends uh, project for me and Lars. Uh, when you're selling a product for you know, $29, um, it wasn't certainly uh, a profitable business. Um, but in doing so, we would continue to to learn, iterate and improve um, and and get it to a point where we felt really confident in the product to then start to be able to invest in marketing. And, and again, going back to what has worked effectively for us, you know, focusing on those uh, things that we could draw a direct line to and that was our paid marketing. And so we'd start with Google AdWords and get very specific and very narrow. Um, I, I'm a big fan of niche businesses and, and going deep on a particular vertical. And for us, you know, the idea that uh, someone was looking for resource scheduling software, very specific, we could do very well with intent, particularly if you look at, it, you know, within an industry like professional services or ad agencies. So we got very good at a vertical uh, marketing play. And uh, and really starting to uh, perfect that, I guess, in many ways throughout the the whole buying cycle. So that's that. Many of those practices we still do today. Um, I think what I've we've done better at is is scaling the team to bring in the specialists to do that even better, particularly in content marketing, particularly in, in uh, how we our, our SEO has improved over the year and gone wider in category. Um, yeah, that's probably been the biggest investment we've made in in scaling growth. Um, We've introduced in the past two years the sales assist and I'm really bullish on the sales opportunity as we move more into the mid-market. That's exciting to me and I think that's a good example of those domains that we're really looking to, you know, we've been PLG from day one, but really looking to scale into more of over the next couple of years.
0: We just had uh, an AMA about content marketing and and SEO. And that's exactly what um, uh, one of the guests has, has been saying, like once you once you're ready to go a little bit bigger, it's great to have specific, um, you know, experts going after each channel and doing each each part of content marketing uh, and SEO, because then, you know, you can really double down on what, what you're focusing on. So I think that's, yeah. yeah.
1: And it really, people then naturally know what you stand for and, and who you are. You know, we now have a Slack community of more than 600, some of the world's best resource planners, and I think we couldn't have got there if we weren't out there speaking about you know resource planning and and uh, and and building that community beyond the product.
0: That's wonderful. Okay, so uh, just a couple more questions, the usual ones on the podcast. So the first one is so far, and I mean I just started thinking about the fact that you started in in 2011, and just all the changes that you've seen in the industry, you know, especially like, for example, with SEO, oh my god, it was so, so different back then, like, you could, you know, you could rank the top one on Google overnight. uh, And then, you know, all these changes. And it's crazy. Anyway, so uh, what has been over this 13 years the biggest win and the biggest failure.
1: All right. Well, biggest win. Look, to be honest, the biggest win sends a little try. I think this is that opportunity. I still wake up each day excited to to build product with people that inspire me, honestly. Um, it's It's been a journey, but that that to me, I think as you, as you grow older with your company, I think that idea of building the product and solving the problem is, um, that, that fades out. and it's more exciting to me about building a company that you believe in and uh, people you know, bringing on people that, uh, that you can learn from and inspire you. And I think to me just that, that period, this last couple of years, going from 25 to 50 people, I think that's really energized me and, and I feel like that's almost been our biggest win is sort of going from a product to a company. Yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd put that up number one.
0: Okay. What about failures or, you know, challenges, biggest learnings?
1: I think like anyone doing this, I think they're just running up against failures and, and learnings all the time. And I think it hasn't changed in, in 13 years. Biggest failures, I often, you know, when I, I think of that question, I, I think of just poor hiring decisions because I think that hurts so much. It's so personal. Um, and, and we made a lot of those early on. And I think um, it it hurts you as a company and how fast you move. But it also hurts the person involved, you know, they to place the bet on you, they've committed their career to you, and you've let them down. And it's often you have let them down, whether it you just didn't, uh, the, the job description wasn't clear, the expectations weren't clear, the, the hiring process was poor. And I look back and sort of that, that's what disappoints me. And I, and I feel like those early stages of growth, we made a lot of those. So uh, yeah, I think if I uh, look back on the failures, it's often people and hiring.
0: Interesting. I, I, I uh, well, I've been asking this question for, you know, 100 episodes almost. And it's always the win or the failure, it's the people that you're working with. Uh, and there it's, it's really, yeah, it's really fascinating to, to see because, well, ultimately, you know, um, teams shape the product teams shape the company, right. So uh, it's really interesting to see <clears throat> how founders talk about this. Uh, this is probably okay. why, you know, <clears throat> sorry, when we acquire companies, at Osgrove, for example, we're so passionate about making sure the team stays, right? Because right on. they got to the point when, you know, the company is, is doing so good, we're interested in, in owning it, right? So they're doing something right.
1: Right.
0: Right. So, um, so yeah. makes total I think,
1: sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah company is just a collection of people, and I think just uh, you know, the way you bring them together and align them around a vision, I think there's something pretty special in that. And so uh, the idea that you'd, you'd, uh, you, you wouldn't bring them along, I think, is, is, is wild.
0: Yeah, yeah, makes sense. All right, and uh, one more question is about a hack, right? You've been around for 13 years, bootstrapped, fully remote, happy every morning to go to the, to the office and work on this wonderful product. What is your hack uh, to anything to maybe to better hiring or, you know, to feeling that good about what you're doing to moving from building a product to a company or anything else basically that um, you could definitely recommend doing to other founders.
1: Sure. If I'll say anything to a, to a SaaS founder starting uh, today, it's this is a marathon. Like, this is not a sprint. You've got to uh, look after yourself, look after yourself personally, mentally. Um, again, 13 years, and I feel like we're just getting started. It's a long journey, it's a big part of your life and your career. Um, so, play it that way, play it for the long term. For me right now, that's probably two things. One, sleep has been a big part of my focus. I know that's a topic uh, on many podcasts, Hooverman, they're all talking about sleep. I have my aura ring, but I think a lot about that because it's it's such, it's easily the most influential on my attitude and my, um, my, capability at work. I have a four-year-old daughter that, that does influence things, but if I get sleep right, I, I, um, I, I can uh, I can achieve a lot. Um, and the second thing, the second hack, I guess, is, is just reading a lot. I, I probably didn't read much of a book uh, until I was about 25. I've read a lot since, and uh, I think it just really accelerates learning language communication. It um, doesn't matter what you read. I love non-fiction. I love business books. It sounds boring to most but I love it. And I think, uh, you can, you can go a long way if you read a lot and sleep well.
0: Oh, wow. That's, that's great. That's where uh, we're going to, to have another AMA about, you know, um, sustainable and healthy, high performance performance. And I think this is so important to talk about it because like you said, it's a marathon and a lot of, a lot of people get exhausted halfway through and, uh, could do so much more if they just, were a bit more mindful about what they're doing to to themselves. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that piece of advice. That's wonderful. All right. Well, Glenn, I think I think it's been it's been great talking with you. Uh, I mean, what you're doing with Float and the way you're doing it, uh, I love it. Uh, I think it's a great inspiration for a lot of founders to just see that uh, radical transparency and just going at it with an an open mind. Uh, So thanks for sharing this on the episode and happy to do it again sometime.
1: I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure, Anna. Thank you.
0: Same here and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna.sas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even at SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, Feel free to visit SAs.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.